Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at oalaig.org, where you will find several speaker feeds with over 800 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. The opinions expressed on the Light a Candle podcast are those of individual OA members and do not represent OA as a whole. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Larry Kay. Unmute yourself, Larry. Here we go. Okay, how's that? Okay, great. Thanks so much. Uh, yeah, Larry Kay, uh, recovered compulsive reader from Chicago. Uh, sorry, I wish I had a, a nice background here to, in which to, uh, to, uh, to, to do this, but um, this is what you get. So th this is as good as it gets. So we're going we're gonna to try to do our best with it. Um, I, well, I, I just want to extend to all of you a special welcome this evening. Um, you really have no idea um, how much it touches my heart to uh, that, that, that you would come to an Overeaters Anonymous Zoom meeting, we can be together this way. And because each week we, you know, we have this amazing uh, collection of people uh, from OA who come together, uh, perhaps something uh, touched them, you know, whether you're someone new or you've been, you've been uh, in Overeaters Anonymous for a number of years, you know, you get to meet these people um, and we've, we found a common solution that's primarily um, you know, why we're here is, is we found a, a common solution. We found a way out, uh, out of the, the bitter morass of this disease. And, uh, you know, we are no longer, for those of us that are in this recovered state of being, not cured by any means, but I'm a big advocate of the big book because it, it's what got me well. Um, uh, they, they do talk about being recovered in the state of being recovered which means for me that I, I no longer suffer from compulsive overeating. I'm not, you know, for lack of a better way of saying it, I'm not holding my breath underwater, you know, fighting for another day um, of, of abstinence. And uh, I, I didn't think that would be possible for, for someone like me. You know, I, I, I tried to, um, to walk out, uh, you know, I tried to walk out of, of any of these speaker meetings with at least, you know, one simple idea, perhaps, uh, the, you know, some sort of transformative idea and let that idea or that thought, you know, take you somewhere, you know, let, let it soak in and, and uh, let your mind and heart be open to a, to a new, new transformative ideas. And, and, and that was the case for me because I, I arrived to the, the, the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous many years ago. Uh, one, I was 100 pounds heavier, approximately. I don't think that was my heaviest. Um, but, but, but I came on a, on a big losing streak. Um, I think that's how most of us arrive here, is uh, on some type of losing streak. And that certainly was the case for me. And I need to remember always that in the 12-step rooms, we, we speak a, a particular language. And it's called the language of the heart. And there's, there's no secret handshakes in Overeaters Anonymous. Uh, we have no hierarchy, there's no governors, there's no you know, self-anointed leaders. Uh, there's no, no hula hoops that, that you have to jump through to call yourself a member of Overeaters Anonymous. All, all you really need to, 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 to do is to have a, a desire to stop eating compulsively. Uh, now, 
Um, what I, what I later learned is there were many actions that were suggested, but they really were actions that I needed to take. In fact, I needed to take action after action after action. In fact, if you, you know, if you look to the left of your screen and you look to the right of your screen, you'll catch a glimpse of someone who got here just the way uh, you did, just the way I did. Uh, they got here on a losing streak, right? And so I'm, I'm glad you're here. And uh, speaking of losing streaks, I wanna, I wanna speak, you know, spend maybe two to three minutes um, on telling you just a little bit of, uh, about a particular losing streak that I know very well, which is my own. This disease uh, robbed me of my dignity. It emasculated me to the point of, of helplessness. It infantilized me. In other words, it stunted my emotional growth uh, my emotional maturity in ways that I, I, I couldn't grasp, grasp at the time. Um, and although I wasn't, you know, one that wanted to particularly, you know, get on a scale um, at my heaviest, to the best of my knowledge, I was approximately 100 pounds heavier than, than, than uh, you know, when I first arrived at, at the doors. And, and this, this disease of my misunderstanding had such a tremendous grip on me that, you know, at the time, that um, after years of binging and dieting, I knew what that looked like. I knew how to binge, certainly. I knew how to diet. Uh, I just couldn't stay stopped. And I knew about binging and I knew about bulimic behaviors. I knew about bulimic exercise. And at that point, each time, you know, I came out of, uh, of the madness of another binge, um, I became awakened to uh, the face of what Big, big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous describes as the hideous four horsemen mentioned on page 151 in a chapter entitled A Vision for You. And, you know, when I read that for the first time, it really struck me because I was, you know, the, the, the hideous four horsemen they speak of as I was awakened to terror, bewilderment, frustration, and despair. And that was my life. And I tore through relationships, um, intimate relationships, certainly family, friends, co-workers, people in my community, it really made no difference. See, eventually I would either chew you up and spit you out, I would isolate, uh, isolate from you, or I'd exhaust the living daylights out of you. And I was an equal opportunity manipulator. See, in my selfishness, the, the, the book told me about my selfishness, although I didn't see it. You know, I didn't see the selfishness because th th that was people with poor values. And I didn't see myself that way because I looked pretty good on paper. And uh, I'll talk a little bit about that, but um, I was a resentment producing machine. You know, I could produce a resentment and I could hang on to that. And I was a part-time judge and I was a part-time jury member and I was the executioner as well. You know, so relationships for me, I tore through those and I miss family gatherings. I miss weddings, I miss graduations, high school reunions, funerals, you, you name it. And in my shame, in my self-absorbed mindset, I lied about my absence from those events. And I felt justified in doing so. I didn't, I didn't have friendships so much as I had, I took hostages. Uh, a, friend is some, a friend is someone who you value through a, through a bond of mutual affection. And so thus, you know, it's built upon things like trust and loyalty. And, and, and it's a kind of a give and take thing, right? A hostage, rather, is a person, you know, that one seizes or holds close, you know, for personal fulfillment. That's what I was. I was a hostage taker. I'm sure I'm probably not the only one on the line that 
that engaged in that sort of thing. And I, I was posing as a friend, but I always had my own agenda, my own script. And I hid behind various masks, living very inauthentically. Perhaps you can relate. See, just as actors, you know, wore masks in the ancient uh, Greek theater, my daughter, uh, I have one daughter, she's, uh, she's a theater student. And, um, and you know, they, they, they wear masks to transform into different characters and roles. And we wear masks in a very metaphorical sense, right? To hide our true selves, uh, thoughts, to hide our thoughts, to hide our emotions. And we, we think we fool our friends, our colleagues, even our loved ones with, you know, the various masks that we wear. And more often than not, you know, we really avoid expressing who we really are and what we really think because, you know, we want to fit in. We want to gain uh, approval. And, and importantly, we, we want to minimize conflict. I always wanted harmony. But we wear masks to put out the impression of an illusion of some sort of perfect life or having the right job or the right occupation or the right car or the right uh, partner, the right house. You know, all these things we hide behind labels and we hide behind our careers and socioeconomics. And our real identity is, is, is masked and uh, it's an ego trap. And, you know, I learned in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, the, uh, this is about ego reduction. And I had to learn a little bit more about what they were talking about because frankly you know ego to me just you know I thought of uh, you know someone with a with an ego you know a big ego and I thought well I'm, I'm a pretty humble guy at least I could wear a mask suggesting I was right um, but you know I I all the world was a stage and uh, this was out of my need to be validated and accepted and I, I think that's very much a human instinct but I took it just like the food beyond what my higher power intended the instinct to be for, right? And yet I didn't see it because I had blind spots. See, I think program very much for me, you know, there's, a, if, you, if you think of a pie chart here, I'm talking to compulsive readers talking about a pie chart, right? But if you think of a pie chart and you think of like a small sliver of that pie, those are the things that we know that we know. The things that we know that we know. I know that I know how to drive a car. I might not do it well, but I know that I know that. And then there's another small sliver of, of those things that we know that we do not know. I know a lot about the brain. I'm a psychologist. I, I've never performed brain surgery. You know, so I, I, don't, I know that I don't know how to do that, right? Despite having some knowledge about the neurotransmitters and all the functions of the brain. I've, I've never performed brain surgery. I, don't, I know that I don't know how to do that. And that's another small sliver of the pie chart. But the vast majority of the pie chart is the things, it represents the things that we do not know that we don't know. The things we don't know that we don't know. And that, uh, my friends, is recovery. It was, recovery was all about the things that I didn't know that I didn't know. And through my false pride, I, I, I didn't understand that. And the disease would have to uh, convince me. So I had blind spots and I had the, the, my insanity wasn't the, you know, the put me in a straitjacket type of insanity. My insanity was merely just having the inability to separate the true from the false. I could not separate the true from the false. And that was a level of insanity that I had to confront in the first step, right? Not just my powerlessness, you know, but I had to confront uh, this unmanageability and that a higher power perhaps could 
restore me to sanity, which by implica implication means that I'm insane, right? Inability to separate the true from the false. So here I was, I, I you know, had a PhD in psychology, piled higher and deeper, that, that PhD, piled higher and deeper, right? I, I looked pretty good on paper, and, and, and all the while I was dying inside. And when I arrived to OA, I was like the walking dead, the walking wounded. And I, I, I had a pulse, you know, I, I appeared to be breathing, uh, but I, I was basically dead on the inside. And that's perhaps worse than the, uh, the last breath type of death, right? To be physically alive, but devoid of anything resembling life, uh, you know, could be worse. In fact, uh, it was worse for me. In step one, we, we admitted that we are powerless over alcohol, that our lives have become unmanageable. You know, when I embark on step one, uh, I need to gain clarity on three specific concepts. The first one is, is alcoholism or, or compulsive eating in our case. What, what is it? And do I have this problem? What's wrong with me? And is what's wrong with me alcoholism or compulsive reading? And how would I know? And the second concept is what's the solution to the problem? See, if I realize that I have the problem and I diagnose myself as having the problem, what's the solution to my problem? And the third concept then is, of course, is how, how do I bring that solution to light? In other words, how do, how do I make that solution happen? How do, I, how do I manifest that solution? Which is, as we know, uh, about action in this program. So those are the three things you're going to need to know uh, for recovery. And quite frankly, uh, those are the three things anybody in the world needs to know to solve any problem. What's the problem? What's the solution to that problem? And how do I bring that solution to light? Now, because in my opinion, there's been an unbelievable watering down of our basic uh, message over the years um, that AA and OA has been in existence nearly 85 some years. Uh, there's, there's leaked into our rooms, I think, an immense amount of misinformation uh, around these three concepts by very well-intentioned people. I love OA. I love the people in OA. They're they're beautiful, they're nurturing. They'll, they'll hold your hand as they did mine. They'll love you until you love, the, you love yourself. And they will walk with you to your, you know, to your grave and, and push in, you know what I mean? <laughs> they're, they're so loving. And, uh, but, but, that, but history shows that um, recovery is not built on that. It's built on these definitive actions that we have to take. And so, you know, what's your problem? What's the solution to your problem? How do you bring that solution to light? And that misinformation, that erroneous information, considering that we're dealing with a life and death matter here when it comes to compulsive eating, alcoholism, other kinds of addictions, that misinformation does more than serve uh, just, just as a detriment to you. It may serve uh, to assist in killing you. It's, therefore, it's deadly information. And... Um, Therefore, it's critical that we understand, you know, what the truth is about our problem and what are, what are the facts. And, and, and I want to be clear, when I say the facts, I'm not talking about Larry's opinion. I mean, I'll, I'll offer, you, offer you a few opinions um, and you can distinguish what you think of me and how much stock you put into my opinions and what to do with those opinions. But here's the thing about opinions in the 12-step rooms. Their opinions. Not only are they uh, the op opinions, but they're opinions of drunks and compulsive eaters and addicts, right? 
Now, I'm not suggesting that compulsive readers and drunks, addicts don't have decent opinions. I suspect I have some decent opinions, and uh, I'm sure uh, you do as well. And, you know, catch me out in the parking lot, and I'm, I'm happy to share those with you. But I can assure you that my opinions will not get you well. In fact, nobody's opinions will get you well. And frankly, the opinions of addicts are not particularly hard to come by. Um, and, and frankly, the, um, you know, just venture over to the nearest bar, the nearest bakery, and, and, you know, prior to COVID anyway, right? And you'll get all the opinions you ever wanted. See, the idea of the rooms is not for you to get people's opinions. But with that said, you will find uh, uh, OA littered with people, beautiful, lovely people, who will give you opinion and frame it as fact. They will give you opinion and they will frame it as fact. And that's going to be very dangerous to, uh, to someone who's in the early stages of recovery, which is a good segue into step one, um, which is, you know, what is helpful with step one is to concentrate on the text in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's the core text that all the programs were built on. Roseanne got herself to a Gamblers Anonymous meeting in 1959. Of course, Gamblers Anonymous was predicated on, they're all predicated on, on the formation of Alcoholics Anonymous. So whether you go to Narcotics Anonymous, Gamblers Anonymous, Overeaters Anonymous, it's predicated on a spiritual program of action. Now you don't have to pursue it that way. And many don't. Nor do you have to be a, a true compulsive overeater, overeater having both the allergy of the body and the mental twist that the doctor's opinion talks about. You don't have to have that to, to find a seat here. Now, I just, I wouldn't want you to sponsor me because this disease is deadly to me. I have those, that twofold condition. So um, putting the plug in the jug, so to speak, or pushing yourself away from the table or cutting your portions in half or, or, or you know, exercising your way to a new, that's not going to work for a guy like me because I am biologically mandated that when I pick up because of the allergy, when I pick up the food, my alcoholic heroin foods, right, it triggers a phenomenon, a phenomenon of craving. And that's, that's bad. That's, that's a physiological thing. Um, and that's problematic. But it's not even my biggest problem. Because my biggest problem is the, uh, the, the, that strange mental twist they talk about, or we call it the obsession of the mind, which means even if I'm not picking up my alcoholic food substances, right? At some point, for some unknown reason, I'm going to be driven back again. And taking a bite is going to feel like a step up. And then therefore, I'm going to trigger the, the, the physical allergy again. And so it's the physical allergy giving way to the mental obsession, giving way to the physical allergy. And it's endless. It's a vicious cycle that you can't. So I am powerless. I can't read my way out of it think my way out of it, talk my way out of it, process my feelings my way out of it. It is a twofold condition that at least according to the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, they suggest that only a spiritual awakening, if you have this thing and you diagnose yourself, only a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, which were intended to be done quickly, abstinently, entirely abstinent, that's what will result in you having an effective spiritual awakening, being brought into alignment with the higher power of your own understanding. And I didn't get that. I didn't get that at all. 
So the doctor's opinion, you know, the, being a seeker is, is a decision that each of us make or, or, or don't make. And, and you can't coast along in this program. You either are seeking for a lifetime or you're coasting. And I think that seeking is one of the miraculous verbs that we use in the spiritual domain. You know, as, as a seeker, am I a seeker or am I a coaster? We just keep seeking. Well, how? Well, there's the practical program of action with precise instructions for taking the 12 steps. And it was never designed by our founders to be completed slowly. And just look historically how fast this spiritual awakening occurred in those in whom the problem was solved, the early AA folks say around 1935 to 1950, they had tremendous rates of recovery. These were gutter drunks. If you're a gutter compulsive overeater like I was, th these people, they, they had an effective spiritual awakening as the result of the steps, but they followed the instructions as only a human being can, imperfectly, but they did put their food down. They had to put their food, alcoholic foods down 100% work the steps with integrity. The steps themselves were never designed to be worked perfectly, but I had to give myself a chance by getting clear on what my alcoholic food substances were and, and committing to putting those down and being willing to go through a period of uncomfortability. You know, another way of saying that is suffering. I suffer. When I put the food down, I'm crawling out of my skin. I'm, I'm, read, I'm ready to, you know, and if I have an untreated condition, I am absolutely crawling out of my skin. I'll tell you about my daughter. My daughter, Elizabeth, she has a, uh, a peanut allergy. The physical manifestation of her peanut allergy is throat constriction. Her throat closes up to the size of a, of a, a pinhole when she ingests any peanuts, even accidentally exposed. Now, with Elizabeth, you can imagine uh, she carries around an EpiPen. If she's accidentally exposed, as she's been on occasion, she, she uses the EpiPen and she's fine. She does have to go to the hospital. And within minutes, she's released. Now, can you imagine if Elizabeth said, you know, doctor, that, 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 this almost dying thing, that, that, that was horrible. What, 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 I, I don't, I don't want to go through that again. What, doctor, what, what, what do I need to do? And the doctor says, oh, that's simple. Just don't eat peanuts. Now, here's the thing. She doesn't, ever. Elizabeth doesn't have to go to Peanuts Anonymous to, not, to, to, you know, to stay out of the peanuts for one more day. In fact, there's no Peanuts Anonymous planned anywhere in Illinois or anywhere in the world. You won't find a Peanuts Anonymous because those people have one of two components of the disease. They only have an allergy of the body. My allergy is also physical in nature. It doesn't mean that my throat closes up or I break out in hives. Here's what happens to me. What happens to me physiologically is when I ingest an Oreo cookie, and I never know which way this is going to go, my desire for more doesn't become satisfied. My desire for more becomes magnified. It becomes amplified. And that's not normal. See, a normal eater, they may overindulge certain foods they enjoy, but every time they eat, it, they get satiated. And then they become disinterested in the food. Not so with us. But see, but see I have the other aspect, which you do too, perhaps, which is the, 
the mental twist, the obsession of the mind, which leads us back. It'd be, it'd be as though Elizabeth leaves the hospital, and if she had the obsession of the mind, she'd go right out to a, a convenience store and pick up some peanut M&Ms, you know, something deadly to her. But she doesn't have that. We do. We have the twofold nature of the disease. So for me, really, this program comes down to a series of surrenders. A series of surrenders would effectuate a drastic change. The 12-step calls upon us to, to wave the white flag over and over, and eventually it produces a phenomenon where our will is brought into alignment or our will is brought into congruence with our higher power, a power greater than ourselves through those, those levels of surrender. If you think of it, look at it like this, the first surrender is someone might be here today is, is, is pocketing your pride and admitting you have a problem. Mind you, you haven't even taken the first step, but you, you're here because you admit, I, I may just have a problem. The next surrender is maybe being convinced to, to choose to put your alcoholic foods down or the behaviors with that and or the behaviors uh, down, maybe a bulimic uh, behaviors, anorexic behaviors. It's not a commitment to a diet because we all have been on those and we realize that diets are temporary. A surrender is not temporary at all. It's permanent, it's unconditional. You know, I can assure you that when, a, when an army surrenders, they relinquish complete control, right? There's no such thing as a temporary surrender. There's no such thing as a conditional waving of the white flag, right? They put their guns down and they give up. That's a level of surrender. It's the first one. See, we have to trust in this process. What process? Is it the tools? No, the tools are, are a part of the program. No, those are the handrails that we use, the food plan, the phone calls, the writing, the literature, all sponsorship, all tools, all vitally important. But it's the practical program of action is taking the 12 steps. We're trusting in a process of the 12 steps that when we navigate through that property imperfectly, we're going to, it's gonna give us access to power. And when that happens, the promises will unfold. We will be given, among other things, neutrality. I was given neutrality over food. I don't suffer from compulsive overeating today. I haven't in many years because I, just stay on the firing line. I live in steps 10, 11, and 12, despite the coronavirus, despite the fact that my mother has, has cancer, despite financial insecurities, despite, yeah, life still happens. But, the, but, but as a result of having this transformation, there is neutrality over that food, right? And half measures of surrender will not only avail you nothing, they'll very likely get you killed. So half measures for, for many people is a slow march towards death because th this program we have to follow the instructions precisely not perfectly but precisely now again i love oa i owe my life to oa but i would be remiss um i think that means negligent if i didn't convey to you some of the problems in our in our fellowship um we you know we as i say the, the message has become watered down to a certain extent and um you know the I, th I think um, what's important to note is that we can be so nurturing in Overeaters Anonymous, right? Which is a beautiful thing. You know, we're so darn nurturing. And, um, you know, and we support people and we, try, and, and we really try 
to hold this lantern, this flashlight up to the steps, right? We really try to do that to the best of our ability. But unfortunately, we realize that, you know, that that's, that's difficult with people. And, and so, you know, it, it stands to reason that, we, you know, we have to pursue the steps with integrity. And um, I want to, by way of contrast, I want to wrap up by, I'd like to take you on a stroll with me back to, for our purposes, say 1947. You walk into an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting in 1947. You're sick and suffering. You're dying from untreated alcoholism. And you stroll in for the first time. Here's basically what you could have expected to happen. You would have been welcomed upon entering. You would have been embraced upon entering. You would have been introduced to all the members within that respective group. And then they would have assigned you a sharing partner. So you would have been linked up with somebody, right? Sharing partner, by the way, means the exact same thing as sponsor. We didn't have the terminology back then, but that's why you, you won't see the word sponsor uh, in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the big book. But th this, this whole notion of searching out for somebody across North America, it didn't exist then. They, they would have linked you up with a sharing partner. And the sharing partner would have sat you down and essentially would have told you the following. They would have said, uh, you know, I'm going to be your advocate over the course of four weeks, next four sessions. And um, for, you know, about one hour per week. And what's going to happen tonight is we're going to go over the first three steps. So tonight you're going to find out what's wrong with you in step one. You're going to find out what the solution to what is wrong with you in step two. And based on that, you're going to make an affirmative declaration in step three based on your understanding of the problem and the solution to the problem, that you're ready to get to work. That's all step, that step three really is. You have 10 minutes left. Okay, thanks so much. So you make that affirmative declaration in step three, and, um, and now you're ready to get to work. And then next week, uh, assuming that you come back, that you didn't hightail it, uh, we're going to go over steps four and five. We're going to talk about a search, searching and fearless moral inventory, uh, we're going to uh, complete your inventory, then, then I'm going to sit down with you, you'll complete step five with me. And then you and I, uh, you know, when you come back the following week after that, we'll go over steps six, seven, eight, and nine. You'll do your eighth step list, and you'll begin doing your nine step amends. And when you come back during uh, week four, beginning uh, during week four, you'll begin to practice steps 10, 11, and 12 at which point you will be a recovered alcoholic. You will learn how to maintain and grow what you've been given by the program of recovery. And then naturally you will become a sharing partner for others. Now, and of course, at that point in the discussion, you know, you had the opportunity to stay for that meeting and begin the process of getting better, or you can run like hell and go back to the disease. It was certainly your choice, right? That was unequivocally what was going on for the first quarter of a century of Alcoholics Anonymous, the first 20 to 25 years of AA, that was how the message was developed, that we put together by our pioneers, our co-founders, which is another way of saying that that's how it was intended to be done. Not how it had to be done, but, but certainly how it was meant to be done as a spiritual program of action. Now let's cut to 2020. You're, sick, you're a sick and suffering compulsive overeater, you're dying from an untreated disease. You wander into an OA meeting for the first time. You may or may not be welcome, depending on the meeting. There, there may or may, they may or may not realize uh, that you're a new person. 
They may have a newcomer greeter, they may not. There may be you know, no one looking out for such a thing. There's a very decent chance that you may come into the room, find a seat in the back as I did, and have no fathom of what the heck is going on. And depending on what type of meeting it is, and considering that topic and discussion meetings outnumber literature meetings, i.e. big book studies, I think it's something like seven to one, uh, chances are you're gonna hear someone's story. You may or may not identify with that story, find it interesting. Depending on the meeting, they may talk about the 12 steps or you may hear nothing about the 12 steps. Depending on the meeting, they may talk about sponsorship or they may not talk about sponsorship. If they do talk about sponsorship, uh, you know, you may start the process of wandering around the entire state of California. Maybe you'll, you'll call in Illinois, uh, trying to find someone who knows how long that will take. And, and when you eventually find that sponsor, it's very possible that that sponsor will tell you that the 12 steps, which can save your life, will take you upwards of a year or more to work, during which time there is a very good chance that you may relapse or die. Now, I'm not suggesting that that's what's going on in every OA meeting, certainly not light the candle meeting, never here. But it is going on, I've been all around the country and, um, and I've had the privilege to talk to different groups and it's going on in a lot of places. And um, so over the course of the first 25 years in AA, you know, we maintain an astonishing rate of recovery. In the last, you know, 25, 30 years, the rate of recovery, not so good. It's really, um, even though there's been a, a, a I think a, a real movement where OA has grown with some healthy meetings, I've seen that, no question. Those meetings like this one are growing. At the same time, I would tell you that it's amazing if in OA, it would be extraordinary if we're pulling off a 5% rate of recovery in a given year. We come by the hundreds and we leave by the 99s. And we are beautiful, lovely, <laughs> well-intentioned people. Nobody's setting out to, you know, for failure here, but we're killing more people than we're saving and it's troubling, it's, it's troubling indeed. So the idea of a back to basics kind of approach or an intense study of what this program is and, 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 and the pace at which someone uh, can do these steps and trust in that process, the process that these gutter drunks trusted in, um, it's important to you that you engage in that process of getting well. Um, and, and so, um, you know, it says on, on Roman numeral uh, 13 in the fourth edition of the big book, the forward to the first edition, it says, we of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered. That's the word they use, who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. It, was, it, it, it seemed to be hopeless to me, but it was never hopeless at all. I just didn't know it. And I had not, it's experiential, and I had not experienced that transformation yet. It says, to show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered. The word precisely how we have recovered is in italics, is the main purpose of the book. So the very reason the book was published is to show you not in any vague sort of, you know, way of how to kind of navigate through the steps. They're going to show you precisely how to work through the steps. And, and, and while I find sometimes that sponsors, beautiful, lovely, wonderful sponsors, 
you know, in their interest of, of being sort of an authority figure and, and so forth, that they, they convey a message of you, you have to do this, this, and this, and they add to the program, or they detract from the core of the program. For example, the, the spiritual, there isn't a spiritual part of this program. The whole program is spiritual. Now, notice I said it's not religious. If it was religious, I would have had for Z Hills when I got here. It's not religious. It's not theological. But the entire program, you know, the, there were the old Oxford group is the early Christian movement that was the predecessor of what later became AA. And they had uh, six tenets, which are really codif were codified into the 12 steps uh, later on when uh, Bill Wilson and, and others collaborated and wrote that. But, you know, they, they talked about, you know, things like uh, accepting our powerlessness, complete powerlessness. They talked about, um, you know, do, going through a personal moral inventory, making a confession, they called it, making restitution for harms done. Isn't that embedded in our steps? They talked about uh, being brought into alignment with a higher power, you know, with God. Um, they talked about service and self-sacrifice for others with no expectation of anything in return. That's all spiritual, and it was codified into our 12 steps. I want to wrap up by saying that there are four specific um, barriers to having an effective spiritual transformation, four specific barriers. I'm going to give them to you because it, it was passed on to me, and it's, it's stuck in my, in my brain. And the four barriers to having an effective spiritual awakening include a resentment we won't let go of. A resentment we won't let go of. Number two would be a secret we will not tell. A secret we will not tell. Number three is a vicarious thrill we will not put down. A vicarious thrill that we will not put down. And the last one, four, the fourth barrier is an amend we will not make. An amend we will not make. That's what, keep, that's what kept me from having an effective spiritual awakening for the first five years in Overeaters Anonymous when I had nine different sponsors, all well-intentioned, lovely people, some in the program, some out of the program. They couldn't give away what they didn't have, but I certainly didn't know the difference. And I did not, I held on to the vicarious thrills. There were certain resentments that I polished like gold. Oh, there were secrets that I was going to take to my grave within my false pride. And there were amends that I wasn't prepared to make. And all the while I wondered, when is it my turn? When, is it time served here? Do I, do, do I you know, is, is, it, is it five years? I used to ask people, how long until you... You had, oh, okay, then I've got a couple more years to go. No, it's not time served. There are, I know people in the program 30 and 40 more years that all they have is a white-knuckled abstinence. And they're beautiful, lovely people, but they have not had an effective spiritual transformation as a result of the steps, because probably because they have not had a complete spiritual awakening. And, the, and those barriers came into, into play. They were operative, as they were for me. So anyways, I'm so grateful for this opportunity to carry message. I don't know if there's anything I said that, that made any sense or was clear, or was helpful, but um, I am a, um, a grateful compulsive overeater. 
um, who by the, you know, if, if, if the God of my understanding, the higher power of my understanding was a higher power of justice, I wouldn't be on the line with you today. I'm grateful that my higher power was a higher power of mercy and grace and compassion. That's the only reason that I'm, that I'm speaking to you today. And so I think, um, I think with that, I guess I'll pass and we'll go from there. Thanks so much.